What we're going to do today is look into some of the things that we have been covering in our student ministry. For those of you who don't know, we go verse by verse. That style of teaching is called expositional teaching, where we'll take a different book in the Bible and, and go through the whole book systematically. And over the last three and a half years, we've gone through many different books. Um, and usually when I have the opportunity to teach, I share something that we've covered in our student ministry with the high school students and with the college students. So I'm going to do that a little bit again today. But I want to tell you guys up front that um, through preparation for this teaching, probably over a month and a half ago, Mike and I decided that we were going to make this weekend graduation recognition weekend. And I've never had a more difficult time trying to figure out what I was going to preach on. And I mean, I prayed about it and I, I thought about it and thought about it and I just felt so cloudy in my mind and I could not come up with what I wanted to teach on. And so I kind of procrastinated a little bit and then yesterday morning when I was like, okay, I really need to put some pen to paper, or I guess I'm a, I'm a millennial so I put my finger on my iPad. So I put finger to iPad and I was like, okay, I really need to figure out what I'm going to teach on. And I thought, oh, that's silly of me. I, I've not really sought the Lord very much in this. I've just been kind of thinking about it. And so I started to pray. I was worshiping and I was, I was reading in my word. And he spoke to me so loudly yesterday morning. And I'm so excited to share what he shared with me yesterday. And so my challenge for you is to stay engaged this morning. To not, not, don't fall asleep. <laughs> stay engaged. Listen to what it is that I have to tell you, normally when I teach on graduation, um, recognition weekend, it's a very specific message for graduates that are going on to a new season of life. For, for seniors from high school that you're graduating, you're going on to the next season of life. Some of you are going to four-year college. Some of you might be staying here, but I promise you everything's going to change even if you stay here. Some of you um, graduates from college are, are, are moving to different countries like Germany. Some of you are going to be... Um, going on to your professional career, some of you are like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing now. This is the real world. Oh no, what am I going to do, right? Um, but, but the message that I believe the Lord has for us, that He challenged me with, and that He has for us this morning, is, is for our church. And it, it's for you individually, and it's for, it's for your role in this church. And for those of you who are leaving, and some of you are visiting from, from college, you're in town, some of you are visiting you know, summer vacation, maybe you're visiting family, I want to challenge you that wherever you go to, wherever you go back to, this is, this is a, a message for you designated to, to challenge you in what your role is in the church. And so we've been going through the book of Revelation. It's kind of funny, last, last book, last, the last books that we went through were Exodus and Leviticus. Now we're going through Revelation. I think we're like on a, let's, let's take on a challenge streak, right? But, um, the book of Revelation is a very interesting book. It's a very challenging book. But I think before we can really get into it, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 8 today, if you want to open up your Bibles there, the first two verses, and then we'll go, we'll go other places in Scripture. Before we get into it, it's obviously necessary to set up at least a little bit of context as to what we're talking about. So first of all, I want to say this, that when we approach the book of Revelation... It's extremely necessary, we talk about this every week with our students, it's extremely necessary to have a mature approach to the way that you're going to interpret it. There's literally thousands of different ways and idiosyncrasies in how you can interpret different parts of Revelation. 
And it's not useful to be, to be dogmatic in the way that you approach the book of Revelation. Because it's about the future. Guess what? None of us have been there before. So you don't really know exactly what it is going to look like. So I think the mature way of approaching the book of Revelation is to first and foremost get over the idea that it's about us. I mean, sure, there's things that deal with what we have in store for us, what we have to look forward to, but the book of Revelation is ultimately not about us. It's about Jesus and His second coming for His bride. And so anytime that you're trying to interpret something from Revelation, really for the, from the Bible for that matter, it's necessary to try to see it through a lens of how does this point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ? More specifically in the book of Revelation, how does this point us to the person and the future coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ? That's what this book is about. Amen? Cool. Stay engaged, guys. So every week, it's kind of, a, a, it's kind of fun. We do this with our students. We, we go, okay, let's set up the context again because we always have new students that come. Some students leave for several weeks and come back. And so we always try to kind of get everybody caught up. It would be really weird if we didn't because it'd be like, what in the world are we talking about right now? And so the book of Revelation is written by John, the Apostle John. And so I ask questions like, which John is this? It's the Apostle John. What other books did John write? He wrote the Gospel of John. First, second, and third John. Yes, good job. Um, and I ask, where was John when he wrote this? He was in prison, kind of. He was on an island. He was on an exile island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And really, it was between the Aegean and the Mediterranean Sea. If you, if you don't know where that is, I mean, you, you have like devices that you can look it up on. Don't do it right now. Do it later. But it's, the island of Patmos is, is, is in the middle of a sea. And it's where a bunch of other exiles would have been sent to who were prisoners and thugs, all that kind of stuff as well. The reason why John was on this island was because he would not say these three simple words. In, in Greek, I don't, I don't know what they were, but in English, it's Caesar is Lord. He, he would not stop talking about Jesus. And they tried to kill him. He wouldn't die. So they're like, okay, we're going to put you on the island of Patmos. And so that's where he found himself. And then we realized the reason why he wouldn't die. It was because he still needed to receive this revelation from Jesus Christ so we could have the last book written that's in our canon of Scripture. So Jesus appears to John on the island and he, and he appears to him in a, in a very incredible way. And all the descriptions are, are written down in chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, um, Jesus tells John to write down everything that I tell you to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So in chapters 2 and 3, there's a few verses that are specifically designated for seven different churches, right? Each church has a specific thing that's told to them. But the cool thing is, is that all seven churches get all 22 chapters of Revelation. So what that tells us is that even though there are specific things said for specific churches, all 22 of those chapters are specifically for us as well, right? They're for us. They're about Jesus, but they're for us. Amen? So John, after he writes down these things, he, he gets taken into heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And we see this incredible scene in heaven. It's incredible. He gets taken up and he walks through an open door and he sees before him a throne. And surrounding the throne are 24 thrones. And on those 24 thrones are, the, are elders. We're not going to get into all of that. Like, y'all can, I'll challenge you to figure that stuff out on your own. Or try to, I guess. And then there's living creatures and there's myriads and myriads of angels. And there's a glassy sea and an emerald rainbow and all this... All this stuff is going on. And seated on the throne is God. And in the right hand of God is a scroll. And on the scroll are seven seals. I like to think of them as like 
like wax seals, you know. Actually, I got an, I got an invitation, Veto and I got an invitation to a wedding not long ago, and it, like, had one of those on it. I was like, that's so cool. Like, who does that anymore? They, like, got a stamp with wax and everything. And that's how I think of this scroll. And, and what John notices about the scroll is that no one is worthy to take the scroll or to open its seals. And so he starts to weep. And then an angel comes to him, and he, or an elder, I think, comes to him and says, weep no more. And then John looks over, and then approaching the throne is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus Christ himself comes up to the throne, and he is worthy to take, to, to take the scroll and to break its seals. See, inside the scroll, what we have is the revelation. It's written on front and back, meaning that it's complete. There's no more room for anything else to be written on it. Everything, everything that needs to be known for us believers is is contained in this scroll. And so Jesus comes, and all of a sudden the attention goes away from the scroll and it goes on to the one who's worthy to take the scroll. It's about Jesus. And then, as we get into the, to, to the preceding chapters, he starts to break each seal. And he goes, one, two, three, four, five, six. And with every seal, something is revealed about the future. And just to be clear, he sees images and signs and visions in heaven that represent things that are going to take place in the future. So that's why it's hard to really take a literal or dogmatic approach to these things, because it's all visions and signs up for interpretation. So when we get to chapter 8, read with me in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So, it's necessary for John to have said that there was silence in heaven because what was happening before there was silence? Praise. The opposite of silence. I guess it was really loud. Ceaseless praise was replaced with complete silence for 30 minutes in heaven. So, back in 2011, I had this really cool opportunity to go to the Passion Conference. Raise your hand if you know what the Passion Conference is. There's like four of you. That's cool. Wow. Okay. All of you are going to know what the Passion Conference is now. So the Passion Conference is this huge conference that's put on by Passion City Church from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, with Louis Giglio's church. That's where Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, Christian Stanfield, all those people lead worship. But they put on this, this, the Passion Conference uh, for, for young people, for, for college students every year. And it started, I think, in Austin, Texas. Now it's, in, now it's you know, it's a... It's, uh, I guess it's home bases in, in, in Atlanta, but now they do these conferences all over the nation because it's gotten so big. They do them in football stadiums and they do these conferences in basketball arenas. But back in 2011, I went with Kevin Dorman and Wesley Dorman. Those of you that know the Dormans, it was way too much fun. We had way too much fun on that trip. And um, we, were in, we were in the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. It just, got, it just got torn down and now they have a new Mercedes Stadium over there in Atlanta. 65,000 people between the ages of 18 and 25 were at the Passion Conference. 65,000 filling up every seat in the Georgia Dome. Can you just ima- imagine the scene? It was really cool. The stage was in the middle. It looked like a Pokeball. For all you millennials, you know what I'm talking about, Pokemon, right? It, and, and it was this circle stage in the middle of the field, and everyone, everything surrounding it. When we would do worship, you can only, I, I mean, I can just remember how loud that would be. You can, you can imagine how loud that would have been. And there were several times where I would just kind of be silent and kind of take it all in and look around and be like, this is amazing. Being with 64,999, I guess, roughly, other people that were my age who also believed the same things that I believe about Jesus, that's incredible. 
That gives you hope, for sure. Like, wow, there's this many like-minded people that are my age in one place at one time. But on the second night there, every year in the Passion Conference, they, they, challenge, they, they, they challenge us to get involved in a different kind of ministry. That year, we were, we were creating awareness and raising money um, to help fight against sexual slavery and human trafficking all over the world. And so that second night, um, we, we said, okay, Louis Giglio gets up on stage and he goes, hey, okay, guys, it was a great night. It was awesome worship. It was crazy awesome in here. He said, but what I want you guys to do tonight, because what we're doing is there's a lot of media coverage that's been attracted because of everything that's going on here. What we're going to do tonight is walk out of the stadium silent. I don't want you guys to talk to each other, no whispering. If your phone rings, put it on silent and don't answer it. We're going to be quiet. And then when, when we have the opportunity to give interviews, we're saying that this is... This is something that we're doing to draw attention to these, to these sexual slaves that are all over the world. And can you, can you imagine walking out of a foot of an NFL stadium? 65,000 other young people too, come on. And it's dead silent. All you hear is... That was overwhelming. It was awesome. I still get goosebumps thinking about that. Even more so, think of this in heaven. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see that there are myriads upon myriads of angels in heaven. And that since the beginning of the beginning, they've been singing the same song day and night and night and day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Myriads upon myriads, tens of thousands upon tens of thousands upon tens of thousands. Basically, it's a number that cannot be calculated or comprehended. And they are seeing in perfect unison the same song day and night, night and day. Jesus comes into the picture and they start singing a new song. So you can imagine how dynamic that this worship is in heaven. And then for 30 minutes, silence. I believe this silence can teach us a few things. Because see, what happens next is that when the seventh seal is broken... If you read with me, I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And if you were to continue reading on through, chapter, through the end of chapter 11, you see that with every trumpet that these angels in heaven play, a new vision and a new revelation is, un, is, is unleashed that represents things that are going to happen during the tribulation. So these 30 minutes of silence are what happen immediately before judgment is poured out over the earth. I believe this very heavily symbolizes this period of time that's building up to, to the end. This time of God's grace being poured out over the earth. And let's not mistake God's grace, or God's patient and delayed response as indifferent slowness. It's been 2,000 years since these things have been said. Silence displaces ceaseless praise. Think of these 2,000 years as an opportunity repeatedly over and over again. God has been pouring out grace and mercy and chances over the people of the earth. All of these chances and grace and mercy are, are given to people before the end comes, before destruction and judgment is poured out over the earth. It's incredible grace that we see God portraying towards us. In Ezekiel chapter 33, if you want to turn your Bibles there, you can. You don't have to. I'm, we're going to go to another passage quickly here. But in Ezekiel 33, verses 1 through 5, um, we see Ezekiel alluding to the significance of trumpets. 
And he says, the word of the Lord came to me, the son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes away his blood, shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. And this is a great illustration here. A watchman, a good watchman who watches over the city, if he sees, if he sees imminent danger approaching the city and he blows the trump, he'll blow the trumpet if he's a good watchman. And then people inside the city are responsible for responding to that. Oh, the trumpeter is blowing his trumpet. That means we're about to be attacked. Let's get ready for battle, right? For these last 2,000 years, there's been signs. There's been chances. There's been grace. There's been mercy. God has been pouring out warning after warning. And my question to us today is, are we going to respond to that? Some of you in here have responded to that. I mean, I would assume that most people who are sitting in, in, in the, I was going to say pews, but you're in chairs, in the chairs of a church on a Sunday morning have responded by at least giving your life to the Lord. I'm not, I don't want to be naive to assume that everyone in here is a Christian. I know that's, that can't be true. But God has been making himself evident and known to us, really since the beginning of creation and certainly since Jesus ascended up into heaven and made all of these promises. These trumpets and visions all represent what will happen during the seven-year tribulation. We talked about that. And God's patience is demonstrated and symbolized by the silence in heaven that precedes judgment being poured out over the earth. Again, 2,000 years since this has been recorded, people might ask, is God not following through? What's taking him so long? We studied in chapter 6 of Revelation that, I think when the fourth or fifth seal was broken, that the souls of the saints coming from under the altar are praying to God for, for vengeance. And, and these souls of these saints are these saints that have been slain. They've been martyred for the faith. And certainly over the last 2,000 years, there's been plenty of martyrs. Even today, in different parts of the world, there's tons of martyrs for the Christian faith. And all of these souls are praying to God, God, avenge the blood of your martyrs. And some people might be, some, some people might be even tempted to ask the question, God, are you not listening to the prayers of these people? What's taking you so long? And what would you say to critics who might question God's ability to follow through on these revelations? What would you say to critics who, who, who ask why God hasn't fulfilled the promises that he's made in this book and, the rest, and other promises in the other parts of the Bible? Why he hasn't responded to the, to the prayers of the saints in chapter 6 for God's vengeance? Is God putting it off because of fear or laziness or indifference? I've gotten questions like this before. Obviously, we would say absolutely not. But why? Why would we say that? Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter, just a few pages before Revelation 8. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 and continue. Starting in verse 1, if you want to read along with me, it's 2 Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, 
I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So again, Peter is reminding these Christians, Jewish converts, Christians about what has already been declared to them. We've, we already alluded to Ezekiel, but if you're, if you're to do a study in any of the prophetic books, any of the major or minor prophets, there's a lot of end times theology in there that are great cross-references with the book of Revelation. Joel, Daniel, Ezekiel, as, we, as, we, as we've already talked about, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah. There's tons of it saturated in all of the minor and major prophets. And he's reminding them of this. Verse 3. Knowing this, that first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I asked this question last night and I was shocked. I'm going to ask it to you guys as well. Who in here, be honest, like if you're not being prideful if you raise your hand, I really want to know, okay? Who in here, through discourse of your life being a Christian, when you've stood up for your faith, have been scoffed at? Okay, there's like maybe eight or nine more of you in this service than the last service. So my response to that is, is that if you haven't been scoffed at, if people haven't given you a hard time for being a Christian, it's because you're not doing it the right way. What I'm not saying is that you need to go look for trouble. Like, that's not, that's not wisdom. That's silly. What I am saying is, is that if you truly represent Christ in your, in your life, and you are unashamed in the way that you talk about Him, it will happen. It's a promise. <laughs> people are going to mock you. People are going to scoff at you. People are going to say, where is your God? There might be some of you in here who have experienced that before. They said, where is your God? Read Psalm 42. There's a little side note. Write that down. Read that later. That's a great psalm. People ask you, where is your God? And you feel like he's not near to you. Just read that psalm. Man, that's a, that's a great psalm. But if you don't experience that in your life, you're not, you're, not, you're not doing it the right way. Let's continue to read. They will say, where is the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We talked about this question earlier. Well, if you always talk about the second coming of Jesus. Where is, where is he then? Everything is continuing just the way that it was 2,000 years ago. Nothing's changed. Obviously, a lot of things have changed, but they might say this to you. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook this fact. Read along with me. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the exact same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are, stir- are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the, and destruction of the ungodly. Basically, by the same words spoken by God that created everything, He, speaking words, will also lead to the destruction of everything that we see. Everything will be burned up. Everything that you see, everything that you can touch, everything that you experience in this earth, will one day no longer exist. Maybe that should motivate you to not put so much weight into the things in this earth then. Yes, it's important to be wise and it's important to be a good steward of things on this earth. But so many of you, and I've been guilty of this for sure, so I'm not standing up here pretending like I'm not guilty of this, but so many of you, if not all of us in here, are so guilty of this right now in your life, only caring about 
what tomorrow is going to look like for you. Or what 15 years is going to look like for you. It's, it's wise to do those sorts of things, but that's your primary motivation in life. When can I retire? I want to be comfortable. You should be storing up for, your, for yourselves treasures in heaven. All of this stuff is no longer going to exist one day. The only thing that is going to remain, based on the promises of God, besides God himself, are people, our souls, and his word. Maybe you should invest in people before you invest in 401k. Let's continue to read. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. This is the answer to our question. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So, 2,000 years, according to this standard, has been, what, like two days? <laughs> and what this isn't is like a perfect equation to figure out, okay, well, 6,000 years, that's, okay, that's six days. No, the idea here is that the way that we comprehend time is silly compared to the way that, that God deals with time. And, and I'm sure you've heard this teaching before, but it's good to be reminded of it and just to kind of submit to this idea what is a million years? What is a million years in the context of eternity? What is a hundred trillion in the context of infinity? It's nothing. It's, it, those things aren't even comparable to each other, right? Listen to this next part, guys. The Lord is not slow, verse 9, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I, I put one of our students on, on the spot last night. Um, Brady Patrick, I don't know if any of you know the Patrick family. Brady's one of our very faithful and involved uh, seniors who's graduating this year. He's in the video, he's doing a DTS. But thurs, Thursday night after youth, Brady came up to me and he's like, he looked really burdened. He looked very downcast. And he's like, Joe, I need to ask you a question, man. And I was like, all right. What's, what's going on, man? He, came, he, come up to me, he comes up to me and he says, are the people that God put in my life to minister to that I was disobedient to share the gospel with, are they going to, like, is it like a sure thing that they're going to have another chance that someone else will come and minister to them? I was like, man, Brady, it's a good question. So we talked for a little bit about like different, you know, theologies and different scriptures, and we talked about the grace of God and predestination and some other things like that. But ultimately, the answer to that question again, again, Brady asked the question: the people that God put in my life to share the gospel with, if I don't do it, if I'm not obedient, are they going to have another chance? The answer to that question, I told Brady, is, look, man, I really, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Now, based, based off of Scripture, I think there's some, in, there's some very relevant things to say. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you ask anything according to the will of God, he will hear your prayer. That's a promise in Scripture. Well, what, what did we just read in verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3? That his will or his wish is that no one should perish. So if you're praying for people's salvation, 
that is a prayer 100% that God is going to hear. 100% God's going to hear that prayer. But if you're not obedient to share with the people that God is putting on your heart to pray for and to go minister to, there is no guarantee that they might, that they might ever have an op- another opportunity to hear the gospel. See, it's incredible. It's the grace of God. But it's incredible. But for some reason, God chooses people to use to save other people. And I know myself. I'm an imperfect man. I'm inconsistent. I'm not faithful all the time. And yet God still says, Drew, I want to use you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others can come to know me and have eternal life. If we really believe that to be true, wouldn't you make that like a primary objective in your life? Like if you're sitting in these pews this morning because... You just think, like, oh, I have to check this off the list. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You're not just a warm body that's supposed to occupy space in a church and take our air away and then leave and not do anything with what you're receiving here. The the walls of these churches are up because people had it in their hearts and minds however long ago to, to say, okay, we need a place where people can be encouraged in their faith so that we can continue to grow the kingdom of heaven. And we're all a part of that. It's God's desire that no one should perish. That's what He wants to happen. It's not going to happen because narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. That does not mean that His heart does not want to see every single person come to know Him. Because He loves His creation. We get to be a part of that, guys. We're a part of that process. Take responsibility. You're, you're, You're not just a part of it. You're obligated to be a part of it. If you're not, you're being disobedient. You're walking in sin, away from Jesus. Repent. Matthew 24:14 says, "And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." The way that God, the way that God saves people is with people. Everyone will hear, and then the end will come. So I thought, okay, what then? And this is, this is how God spoke to me. And so if, if, you're, if, if you're still awake, this is the part right here that we all need to be challenged by. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And that's the question I'm asking you this morning. If you were to title, I asked Veda last night, what should I title this message? And she was like, the question? I was like, oh yeah, good call. What sort of people ought we to be? That's the question that's being asked here. And, and if you're actually taking this seriously this morning, there's a few passages that I want you to, to write down that I would challenge you to go meditate on and really ask the Lord, you know, how can, you, how can I apply this to my life? How is it that you're going to challenge me in these different ways? So if you're, really, if you're taking this seriously, Romans 12, 9 through 21. Brother Mike read that earlier. That's literally in my Bible. The heading is, The Marks of a True Christian. It's like, oh, if, if, I'm, if I'm really trying to emulate the characteristics of Christ and, and really try, want my life to be exemplary, then that would be a good passage to try to emulate. Obviously, perfection is, is what God challenges us to be, but it's not attainable on this side of eternity. Rather, it should be a desire for you. So that, Romans 12, 9 through 21, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And then also another place in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9, which is making every effort to add to your, and all these different characteristics are given. 
However, I really want to focus on one aspect that is crucially important to your success as a believer and to our success as a church. This is, this is the part where I really want us all to seriously evaluate our hearts in and to really ask the Lord, am I being faithful in these ways? On January 20th, 1961, I wasn't alive then, if any of you thought I was, the inaugural address that John F. Kennedy gave whenever he was inducted as being president, he said, And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Right? I think, hopefully, you know where I'm going with this. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, let's go there with each other. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. What we see is the first church interacting with each other. The way, that, the way that the church was intended to interact with each other. What we see is Peter, a broken, broken man who denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus died. And when Jesus came back from the dead, he came to Peter and he asked him the question three times, do you love me? He recommissioned him. And then what we see is a radical transformation in the life of Peter. So put aside whether or not you if, if there's anyone in here saying, like, I don't know if I believe the Bible. Well, this, this is documented that Peter denied Jesus and that he was running away from Jesus. And then something happened that made Peter turn in the opposite direction. Because on the day of Pentecost, he preached a message when the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people were saved that day. And then after that, the church blew up. But what we see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 is this. Read along with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In this passage, we see different components of true community. They devoted themselves to their leaders' teachings. They were eating together. Some of the most precious times of community and fellowship that I've had are around the table sharing food with other people. I'm sure some of you could agree with me on that. They were like-minded they had all things in common. And really, I think why that is, is because they were submitting their feelings and their thoughts to Scripture. And so as they were submitting to Scripture with each other, God was uniting them as one. And they had all things in common. They were being generous and selfless with their resources. It talks about physical resources like money and possessions, but it's definitely not a stretch to the context of other parts of Scripture to say that they were generous with their spiritual resources as well. They had communion with, with, each, with each other. They, they opened up their homes to one another. They were worshiping and praising God with each other. And that's really what all of this is. All of these different activities, if you were to characterize it with one word, it would be worship. It would be true community worship. And there's a good word that's in, that's in verse 42. Um, the word for fellowship, most of you, maybe not most of you, some of you might know it, koinonia, describes this spiritual partnership this is so important, guys. It describes spiritual partnership and participation. There are so many of you sitting in these, 
chairs this morning who you ask, what is this church going to do for me? And you complain. You complain that the worship isn't the style that you like. You complain that, that the preaching wasn't engaging enough. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't care if that's how you feel about this today. This is what the Lord gave me to share you. You, you, you. you complain about so many different things because it's not the way that your cookie-cutter Christian mind wants it to be. And what you're failing to notice is that you have been given a specific responsibility in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how each part of the body has a specific role and function. You're supposed to contribute to the ministry and fellowship of this church. True fellowship is spiritual participation and partnership. And if you're not fulfilling your role in the church, you're walking in disobedience. You're walking in sin away from Jesus. This is the second time I've said that already. Seniors that are graduating, for those of you that are going on to a new season of life, you've heard us say these sorts of things before. It's so true, though. The most important thing that you're going to do when you go off to a four-year college or if you move to go start a job somewhere else is not, like, making sure that you figure out your major or working really hard in school or, you know, being diligent in your job, like... I know parents are like, whoa, be quiet. Like, that stuff is super important. Like, if you're not doing that, you're not honoring what God's given you for sure. But the, the most important thing that you're going to do is find a koinonia, is to find a church where you can contribute to and where you can be blessed by. Some of you think that the church is here to bless you, which for sure, we come to church so that we can be equipped and blessed and sent out to go do things. But you're called to bless your church. You're called to participate you're called, you're called to partner in your church. Guys, in this church, there's so many different, different things that, that we could use as examples of how, how this is happening. We're not a perfect church. There's no church is perfect. But we have um, Dan with the singles ministry. We have the student ministries with high school and college. The junior high ministries, they go into homes and they have, they have dinner with each other and worship and teaching. Men, we do breakfast and we have retreats that we go on. We have the college-age uh, BSM at UTEP. Chris Smith is very involved in our church. Celebrate recovery and the landing. It's a great way to be involved. The media team, the worship team, the different worship teams that, that, that play here have really great fellowship with each other. Sunday school classes, home groups that Eric Jimenez is starting up, the young married class that Eric and Jordan are leading. That's great fellowship there. There's no excuse. There's no excuse for you. There's so, so many ways for you, get, for you to get involved in true Christian community. And, and you know what? What does that require from you? It requires you to be somebody who's open, who's honest. I do high school ministry. High school students are weird. And they're mean. And they're problematic. And I love it because I get to be involved in their lives. And, and sometimes it's really painful and it's really messy. And it's really painful. It, it's, it, it's hard. But here's the beautiful thing, that when you really allow yourself to open up, and you're honest with your koinonia, and when you contribute to people, when you, when you really allow yourself to be invested and involved in, in a local church, you get, to, you get to experience what Christian community is supposed to be like, as God's Word, as God's word teaches, it, it teaches it to be for us. So that's, my, that's a challenge I leave with you today. 
Who are you to be? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you give us opportunities to be involved. And Lord, just as in Revelation, Lord, your destructions and your wrath is poured out over the earth, we know that that has been preceded by centuries of grace and mercy and chances. Lord, and many of us are the product of those chances. And Lord, even as Christians, we mess up all the time, and you give us mercy and grace and chances. So I pray that we would respond to your voice today, God, that we would respond to be committed members in your church, Lord, that we would be faithful with the gifts that you've given us, Holy Spirit, to contribute to the body, and that we would not be guilty of not caring, that we would not be guilty of complaining without doing something about it. Lord, you're so good to us. Your loving kindnesses are forever. You endure forever, Lord. I thank you that you help us to be able to do the things that you've called us to do. We can't do it in our own strength unless you're building everything that we do is in vain. So help us to, help us to live in, in humble submission to you, Lord. We ask that you would have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.